Hello and welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. I'm Rowan. And I am Blue. And we're here to talk about game design. This month we are looking at inner and outer loops in run-based games, which, when you first hear that, might be a slightly confusing phrase. But let's just sort of break it down, and I'm sure it'll become less confusing very quickly. So first, let's look at this last part of the phrase, run-based games. What's a run-based game? Here we go, let's try this. It's a game based on a run. <laughs> it's, it's co-op. Um, if you think of a, a game uh, experience, you think of a start, middle, and end, you know, like a, a very standard standard story experience for a run-based game we're thinking of a relatively compact start middle end and something that helps you kind of conceptualize this is can you see the amount of time that you will probably put into this going in uh we're dancing around a word that will make this very obvious to people but we want to start with that right but we see run-based things in all sorts of genres like we can look at well we even talk about speed runs in the gaming community and we can sort of think of them as runs because they often are in like very definable chunks of time yep. compared to like just playing a game. Um, puzzle games, like a run of Tetris, you know, going through marathon mode and things is like a very estimatable amount of time and things like that. So I, I guess let's just put it out there for a lot of the games on this list and for a lot of people. What should immediately come to mind are roguelikes and roguelites, um, K and T. Yep. <laughs> Got to be very careful with enunciating that single letter. Yeah. yeah I'm just going to K and T. And what this kind of means is, you know, you're, you're going to go into a session and you're going to say, I'm going to start one. Depending on the game, the amount of time that you're expecting to put in will vary slightly. And, you know, sometimes even within that game, you're going to have quite a large variance Sometimes you think, oh, maybe a 20-minute run, which can sometimes balloon out to a 40-minute run. That's literally double the amount of time or even longer. And that's normal. Oh, sometimes you can be like, ah, oh, I'm going to sit down and have a nice, juicy run. And then you die in the second room. And, and all of that's normal and fine, but you still have an expectation of this is kind of the variance that I'm looking at. And specifically, what we want to look at today are relatively short ones, so not 70-hour RPG experiences, but you know anything up to maybe a couple hours, maybe three hours, if you're really good at a game and you're having a really good string of luck. Uh, and yeah, that's the run-based part of this. And then the second part is a little easier now that we know what we're talking about with a run, which is inner and outer loops. Um, some of you use different names for these things, but because we're trying to think be more genre agnostic. ambivalent, agnostic, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Genre agnostic. Um, we thought inner and outer loops would be a better term for this. And basically the inner loop is the run. Games have loops. So the core loop is the loop that's going to appear in the inner loop generally. And the outer loop are the things outside of that. Some people call this meta progression, but we're using outer loops for the purpose of today. And meta progression is a perfectly fine way to talk about this, except that we also very consciously wanted to have things that are very light on meta progression, if any meta progression at all. And that still matters. That's still part of a loop. Or at least like they have meta progression, but not in the way that we might traditionally think of the phrase meta progression. But, you know, keep this in mind that we're going to keep talking, we're going to keep saying loops and outer loops and stuff like that. If in your head it works better, it's just thinking it's meta progression. Go ahead and make that substitution. It'll still probably work out fine. And we might even slip into these words out of like yeah, sure. force of habit more than anything. Absolutely. Um, and I, I suppose that's that's a good point to just jump into our first game that honestly has quite a bit of just meta progression. It does. It has a lot of meta progression. Let's get on with it.
Games is a 2020 run-based action game developed by Supergiant Games, designed by Amir Rao, Gavin Simon, Greg Savin, Eduardo Gorenstein, and Alice Lai. Special mention as well goes to writer Greg Savin, which we are mentioning here because uh, while it's not normally one of our usual focuses, Fokai, the writing is a huge aspect of Hades that like elevates the game over a lot of its contemporaries, at least the way we feel about it. So with that said, let's talk about what Hades actually is. You play as Prince Zagreus attempting to escape from the underworld. You are progressing through various rooms and locations in the realm of Lord Hades. And as you go through the levels, you attain power-ups that increases Zagreus' power for that run until you die. And then you go back to the beginning again. And all those power-ups are usually accompanied, or some the initial like power-ups are usually accompanied by some talk with a god as well. A lot of this is themed after gods and such. And there's a lot of um, dialogue in this game, both within the runs, like, you know, you're encountering people and they're developing their relationships with you a little bit, but also primarily in the after you die section, in the sort of hub area, you have a lot of the conversations too that are forwarding characterization and plots and and oftentimes even the conversations you have in the inner loop in your run in your escape attempt bears some plot progression outside of it as well like reflects plot progression outside of it your relationship with the gods changes across the runs as you're speaking with them and that's like there's actually a very simple and rudimentary relationship system in this game reflect this as well this game has a lot of things going on in its systems But generally, yeah, we have the inner loop being the run through Tartarus and the realms of Hades, in which you fight lots of things, collect power-ups, collect some resources, and then that outer loop of getting narrative, getting interactions with lots of characters, and powering up Zagreus and his weapons. I should jump back real quick because I've missed this. No, no, this was my fault. Like, I thought of this as I was speaking, but... The way you play Hades, we talked about what you do, but your primary actions are kind of dodging around from in an isometric view, hitting enemies and killing them. And it's very much action-based, reaction-based. What's the enemy doing? I'm going to dodge it and I'm going to hit them back. There's normally enough time for you to get out of the way of anything big. Nothing is normally too fast for you to not react to. It's very much a pattern-based game. And it's like a action game that's fairly intense in some ways, but it's not like combo-based. Like this isn't Devil May Cry. Okay, with that out of the way, Let's talk about some of the aspects in the outer loop that we think are the most interesting. So we've we've already touched on one, which is the fact that relationships and plot grows outside of the inner run section of the game. And you have to do certain things in the run to progress things. For example, a clear one is if you actually complete a run, that changes the state of a lot of things outside of it. It's sort of there are 10, like there are counters like one run finished and like 10 is the ultimate ending, is it? 10 full escapes gets you to a credit sequence. Okay. Is uh, the way I would put it. So the first time you escape, you haven't beaten the game yet. Like the game just continues as normal. But once you've beat it 10 times, the game is content to say, hey, congratulations, you've done the main thing of this game credit sequence and then you have post game after that and even that's like a really interesting little micro point that will it's less important now but it will tie into the future games that we're going to be talking about which is this has not an end end but like it has a point in which the game tells you like you've kind of finished you can play it more but like you're done 
right? This is, yeah, this is a big thrust of our setup. If you're happy with this, walk away. If you're still interested in what's going to happen to these characters, like there's a bit more to say kind of thing. And the amount of text in this game is worth commenting on a little bit. It's to the point that for a lot of people's experience of this game, they do not experience much in the way of repeated text from characters. And that is an impressive feat that does, I think, like enhance the enjoyment of doing these loops because roguelikes are kind of punishing. I'm sorry, run-based games can be kind of punishing. They can feel like a little draining to sort of keep bailing in. But the fact that you're always getting this interesting, well-performed dialogue from Mm. characters that you care about in a very immediately interesting and relatable, like, I love the very first moment I met, like the core characters in the hub area yeah house of hades i'm like i love them all like i am compelled by their vocal performances Mm. by the really great writing it's a joy every time to talk to them so failure feels a lot better by having all this here i've heard of some people who are just excited like they're gonna try in the run but they're excited to see what happens after that because they get to see the next part of the story yes and i think that's really important how easy it is to just like keep playing this game it's so smooth and i think all this text is a part of that the outer loops definitely smooth out a lot of problems that that various people have with run-based games, which is just the end of a run often feels like a failure, where that's not necessarily how the design is intended. The design intends you to learn from your failure and to build on it, but it doesn't lessen the sting of the fact that you did fail. So this game adds in story hooks and plot and exposition and character interaction to be able to kind of soften that blow and make the outer loop much more of a meaningful thing. Although there is also some mechanical aspects to this outer loop that we do need to talk about. So some people might call this more traditionally a rogue light, um, which are run-based games that have a lot of character power progression in them. And so Zagreus has the Mirror of Darkness, where resources in the run can be spent to improve certain attributes. And they're all pretty specific. Like, there's no, like, you improve your strength by one point. Like, they're yep. improve backstab damage, improve HP gained between rooms. Some, some of the important ones are just um, there is an attribute or, or a, a small a small resource in the uh, in a run called death defiance and that is literally just when you hit zero hp you come back again at half health yeah and this can be slightly modified but with half of your maximum health and that's kind of an important resource because that just increases the amount of failure you're allowed to have in the in the run yeah and you can increase your max hp as well and like a lot of games in the sort of genre managing your hp over the run is a really important thing like you don't get a lot of opportunities to recover it in my experience at least so a hit is a big loss and so having like death defiance having the thick skin which is extra hp and things like that really like can double or triple the amount of time you can be in a run yeah and it very much like if you are someone with a design eye definitely look at it in this way all of these mechanics just allow players to be less precise they're they're allowed more mistakes they're allowed more oopsie moments and that's basically all it is a a super punishing run-based game will just take you out on their first mistake something a bit more forgiving will you know allow you a few more and Oftentimes, meta progression is just building up how many mistakes you can make in a run. For all the welcoming aspects that this sort of um, system has, I know why people like these systems. 
And this is a very personal preference, but I very much dislike these sorts of systems because when I come to run-based games, I kind of want my first run to feel like I am just as enabled to finish it as my 10th run, as my 20th run. Like, sure, some variables might adjust over the runs, but like the fact that in Hades, finishing and beating Hades on my very first run is infinitely less likely than on my 20th run is, to me, frustrating as an experience. And this is partially like an expectation setup that I came from different games. And if you started from this sort of a game, it's probably not frustrating at all. But I definitely think like that's an experiential thing that you lose in a run-based game by having these systems. I guess additionally onto that, not only do those your power change over the course of the many runs, but Zagreus gets new weapons. Yes. From the meta progression systems. And these weapons are really different. Like there's a very good chance that the weapons you have at the start of the game are not going to be your favorite and that you'll have to earn the things that actually suit how you like playing this game. Absolutely. So I guess we can go into a couple of... There's only six weapons. So we can talk about all of them quite easily. You have a, a uh, broadsword style weapon, just very straightforward. You swing a sword. Uh, you can slam the ground for kind of an AoE attack. A spear, long range. If you charge attack, you can make a big AoE attack, but then you're stuck charging for an amount of time. A shield, which is actually quite an aggressive weapon. It has a shield bash, which has a knockback, so you just swing the shield and bash someone with it. Or you could hold it down to um, block, and while you're blocking, charge up, and then when you release the charge, you just dash forward and damage enemies. It's very satisfying. I love it. Very satisfying, because there's not many things you can do in the game that just makes you invincible, but this gives you a perfect, everything from this direction is blocked, even if it's like a supercharged, heavy enemy melee attack. As long as the facing is correct, you, you just block it out completely. Then we get into some ranged options. We have the bow, which is, as you would expect, a bow uh, requires a bit of charge up, because you have to draw the string back, and makes for interesting spacing and positioning options. Uh, I'm going to skip the fifth one and go to the exagriff, which is um, a gun. Like, for lack of a better word, it's a gun. Uh, and the characters in the game actually, like, allude to, like, mm, these are god weapons and, oh, mortals. Let's hope mortals never get the power of guns. Uh, it's 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 quite well balanced for the game. It, it's not completely overpowered. It is something that you have to manage ammo with. Uh, there's a, like, reload. You have infinite ammo, but you occasionally have to reload, which takes time away from you being able to attack. And the last weapon is the fists, which is very close range isn't really combo but it has a lot of like quick hits so yeah like very different styles of gameplay being presented across all of these weapons and the way you approach a an an enemy encounter with any of these weapons probably varies quite drastically although you will still have the core concept which is just I want to attack from a safe place. It's just that sometimes that's harder to do with different weapons. You mentioned that they were almost like playing different games, right? Yeah. In like a pre-recording discussion. Mm. I sort of forgot to mention this earlier when it would have fitted better in the conversation, but... One of the interesting things about these meta progression elements is that sometimes your runs change from being about completion to being about resources. Like maybe you see before you start the run, oh, I'm three of the resource I need to unlock the next weapon away from getting it. So in the run, your priority is get keys, which is the resource you need. And you go for the rooms that will get you that. Sometimes you're like, oh, I've got these things set up. Now this run is about collecting darkness, the resource for the mirror of night yep and a few things like that and you mentioned in a pre-recording talk as you get further and the costs get higher this is less of a thing but it's at least in the earlier part of the game it's very much a thing especially for some of the more binary power-ups like death defiance and the dodge increases Mm -hmm. absolutely hades has a very complicated and complex 
web of interaction in terms of the resources that you have to manage and juggle that is just completely independent of what you're doing, uh, how you're performing in a run. Like it affects what you're doing in a run because you choose to um, manage these resources there as well. And that's not really the focus of what we're talking about here. We want to just highlight that, yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of resources that we haven't even bothered touching on. And all of that is something that you just juggle in the outer loop. And the, all those outer loop things combine, I think this is a real point, they combine to create this feeling of moving forwards, which is the thing that a lot of run-based games lack, this feeling of momentum going forwards. And Hades was extremely popular. A lot of people said, oh, finally, a roguelike with story. Oh, finally, a roguelike that I feel this, this, this about. And I think that these systems are a big part of why people have such a fondness towards this game alongside the fact that all the individual components are quite good like the writing is just quite good on its own the game feel is quite good on its own combined with all these little systems that create this wonderful feeling of advancement that i dislike but other people like absolutely well i get i think that's about all we have to say here so how about we move on to a game that not many people like but that you really like yes that sounds ideal Mystery Dungeon, Shirin the Wanderer, is a 1995 Super Famicom run-centric turn-based single-character RPG that was released for English-speaking territories on the DS in 2008, developed by Spike Chunsoft, directed by Tadashi Fukuzawa, and the DS version specifically by Hironori Ishigami, and produced by Koichi Nakamura, and designed by Shin Ichiro Tomie. And so Shirin, more so than any of the other games in this list, is a game that is like Rogue and we don't want to have too much of a discussion about language but I think it's worthwhile in this case because Shirin is a very early game in this sort of genre compared to many others today at least thanks to being from 1995 but yeah this is a game that has permadeath it has minimal progression systems it is sort of time moves as you do turn-based I do a tile of movement or an attack everything else moves alongside me or more accurately immediately after me um there's mechanics like hunger and a small inventory you know a lot of the modern discussion using this word has these like very action-centric games but the genre is much more based in sort of mindful turn-based and fairly harsh nature so what is Shirin specifically it is a game where you are climbing up a mountain that at the top has an object that you want it's a pretty simple plot lots of people are climbing this mountain to get to this thing. And along the way, you meet a variety of bizarre characters, everything from masseurs to adventurers to dogs that give you hints about what bracelets to wear. You run into a few towns and things. But for the most part, you are just engaging in good dungeon-based, turn-based combat and movement to get to the top of this place. You have simple weapons. You have a few magical items you can buy stars that you can cast from and scrolls you can use once and you level up like in a traditional rpg as you fight things but those levels those items all come to nothing when you die you're sent back to the first floor of the dungeon often in like a, a town setting where you can talk to people and things yeah like it's a town but like it's not a hub it doesn't feel like a yeah in fact the hub like town is more like the fifth floor of the dungeon in the dungeon there are a few like breakpoints, i guess where you you find different towns where you can 
spend some of the money you obtained or sell items you don't need anymore. And often these like midpoint towns are where the game's small amounts of meta progression can occur because there are basically two main parts of the meta progression that does exist or the outer loop, I should say. That's the terminology we said we we're going to use. Yeah. One of these is quests. There are very small, short quests with characters that you meet in the dungeon or in the towns that you can progress more or less just by talking with them multiple times and sometimes doing extremely easy tasks, like giving them a little bit of money or giving them a very common item. And we say quests, but Sharon doesn't have a quest log, right? Um, I don't think it does. Yeah, it's not like... These have this sort of organic feel to them of, oh, I met this person going up the mountain, you died, you come back. Oh, I met the same person going up the mountain. It's that kind of feeling of like, if you make the same hike every day at the same time, you tend to meet the same kinds of people and you develop a bond with them kind of deal. Yeah. So like, for example, one of the earlier things that you'll meet like this is Oyu the Blinder. And she is a lady you meet. You can talk to her. She's a bit suggestive. And she asks if you'll close your eyes for her for just a moment. And if you do, she'll blind you for ages which is the status effect in the game (laughs) yes and then if you do this again she'll apologize but then do it again again. and then the eventually you'll meet her in one of the villages between floors and dungeon and she'll be being harassed by people because okay to be fair because she's done this to a lot of people and everyone's upset at her i think that's fair (laughs) She's she's called Are You the Blinder, not like a self-proclaimed title. Yeah. That is what everyone calls her. Yep. And, you know, this is very simple. And the results of all this quest are that after all this, you talk to her in the dungeon, and rather than blinding you, she might join you. And teammates are not always useful. They can be a liability because ensuring if a teammate dies... The thing that killed them gains a level, but monsters in these dungeons don't have standard protagonist levels. They just go to the next tier of monster. Yeah. You know, the blue dragon goes to a red dragon or goes to a gold dragon and so on. The mini boss becomes a boss is the kind of progression we're talking about here. And if you have multiple party members, heaven forbid... Um, you could have a single monster go from being the tier it should be now to being the tier it should be at the very end of the game. And since Shirin, unlike a lot of other run-based games that we are talking about, has a lot of, like, you get a lot of power in the run as well. Like, in Hades, you get power throughout the run, but it's not that ridiculous, is it? I guess, I guess it, it is. It gets there. But yeah, that's true, it does. Yeah, it's interesting we're talking about more raw statistical power yeah. here with Shirin, where as you level up, your strength goes up. The amount of damage you literally can deal goes up. Because of the way the combat works, it's not, uh, oh, if I'm smart, I can dodge out of the way. There is some of that positioning involved, but oftentimes when you want to beat a monster, it's it very much comes down to head on, can I yeah. kill them before I they kill them? Once you are at the, the monster is next to me stage of a fight... That is just the whose numbers will beat the other numbers Precisely. in the right timing. Because Shirin has a lot of focus on using items in your inventory that are consumable. And this is one of the reasons why like Shirin works, why roguelikes like this are really compelling is that they're RPGs that basically say you have to use your items. 
that's like the fun appeal of these arcade like RPGs. You're, you're going to lose it anyway. Don't save that elixir for the boss fight. That's never going to happen. Yep, exactly. But Shirin breaks this exact thing that I just said was kind of interesting in that one of the more unappealing interests uh, parts of the meta progression is storehouses. So there are a few points in the game where there are storehouses that you can leave items for future runs. And this means that you can like slowly over the course of many runs upgrade an item or two at the blacksmith and so on and so forth. And this means that basically what often happens is you will slowly accumulate like a good setup of items in these storehouses. And one day you'll be like, you know what? I'm feeling great. This is the day I'm going to climb up that mountain. But if you fail, the consequences of failure are the same as always. You lose everything you have. So you are able to like progress a certain amount, but there's no permanence to these things. Very much feels like Shirin is a game where you will fail in your run more often. Yeah, that's very good. That's a very good point. And um, so a lot of uh, things like Hades feel like they're built to get players to the end of the game. Like eventually you're going to get there. And even Hades had a additional mode, God, God mode, where you slowly just increase arbitrarily in power and defense as you lose on top of all the meta progression systems that were in that game in the outer loop. Yeah, it's propelling you to be able to experience a story, which makes sense because the story was the focus in Hades. And Shirin has text in it that alludes to the fact that there's a story in it. I think that saying that there's a story in this game is maybe a bit generous. It's a setup, right? The game is a setup for you to climb. And it's more about the climb than anything else. And the the run in Chirin, I think, is more like Endless Mode and Tetris. Like, in Marathon Mode and Tetris, you're supposed to finish it. In Endless Mode, you're just supposed to play as long as you can. And I really think that's where games that are like Rogue really shine, in that they're about getting as far as you can in a run. Mind you, there is a top of the mountain in Shirin. There is a top of the mountain, and you get that. And once you finish that, there are a very small collection of extra things you can do in the game. There are some bonus dungeons that have slightly different rules to the main game, and a few different like ways it alters how the randomness works and things having said that the emphasis on failure like we brought this up in hades hades smooths out a lot of the feeling of oh i lost you know which which can be hard to get over to look at what you learned in that run shirin is an old enough game that it doesn't care to do that when you failed you failed did you learn something if you didn't well maybe you wasted your time but you probably did we internalize so much just from playing we don't really fully you know even realize what we learn as we play a game the patterns that we take in and stuff like that it's just that it's an old concept and there's so many games now games don't have to last forever anymore (laughs) a thing i said on another podcast which is quite relevant here is just that people don't have time to fail a game forever anymore yeah and even as someone who really likes shirin like i really like this game there was a modern version of it released on switch last year shirin is not a game that like is smooth to play like it's very easy to burn two hours in hades and like have a nice time with that in Shirin, often you do a run and you finish the run and it by dying you're like i'm done for the night and this isn't a bad thing but like in hades it's very much a one more run next run i can get this and unlock this in Shirin, you don't feel that way all of my emotion was invested in that run now that run is dead and that sounds like we're being really negative about it 
But this is definitely like a different things to different people. And Hades is very much the exact thing it needs to be for a lot of people. And Shirin is the exact thing it needs to be for the opposite kind of people. Yep. In some senses. And I think like interestingly valuable. And it's a shame that we don't get more things like Shirin sometimes. But anyway, I think that's all we've got for this game, right? Okay, then let's move on to our next title. One Step from Eden is a 2020 run-based real-time card battler developed by Thomas Moon Kang. One Step from Eden takes a lot of inspiration from Slay the Spire and from Mega Man Battle Network to create something unique and incredibly chaotic. <laughs> so this game is very action-based and it plays basically in battles that are on a grid that is an 8x4 grid split into two halves, blue and red. Your character can navigate the blue tiles and your opponents can navigate the red tiles. And there are a few abilities, of course, that let you get around those rules. But in general, that's the basic setup. Your goal in every section is to defeat all the enemies on the opposing side, generally. You do this by getting cards. Cards cost MP that slowly regenerates over time, and you get the option of one of three cards at the end of every area that you play. And that's a general... Always, but as a general rule, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you get artifacts as well, and artifacts give you more passive things generally. Permanent modifier. And that's like the very loose gist of it. And then after each individual area, you can pick from like a tree going forwards what the next section will be, and you can identify what kind of thing that event might be based on the icons, which is very much from Slay the Spire. Yeah, I was going to say, for anyone who's played Slay the Spire, this should sound very familiar. Its run, its inner loop is very Slay the Spire like it's in a loop is to see how far you can go fighting these card based battles it's combat though is oh boy it definitely bears resemblance to Mega Man battle network but i wouldn't say it's that the pace is higher is faster it's just that there's there's just a bit more information to keep track of yeah, you've got to notice what cards you have at any given time how much mana you have you've got to see what's coming next and you've got to combine this all with responding to what enemies are doing. And enemies in this do a lot. They're not complicated, but they move fairly frequently. Yeah, I, I think every enemy only has one attack pattern, is general rule of thumb. If you learn what one enemy's attack pattern is, that's it. You've learned it outside of bosses. But the thing is that how their attacks interact with spacing. This is a game that happens on an 8x4 grid, and the reason that's important is because attacks effectively take up space. Half of the attacks in the game aren't straightforward. Half the abilities in the game aren't straightforward, I should say. Where, you know, a shot that goes forwards and back, for example, is a very simple one. And sometimes they can hurt you again. Most of the times they can't. It starts to just layer on so much information that the it feels like one of the game's goals is informational overload. Like When you understand the information that's throwing at you, it really is a game that sings so well, but it's very hard to get your mind in the spot that it can interpret all the data it's throwing at you. But that's not 
really the point of our discussion here. Our point is sort of more on this game's unlocks. Yeah, the outer loop. What happens when you are done with one run? What do you get from it? And so on and so forth. Again, very similar to Slay the Spire. You accrue experience across your account, and that allows you to unlock cards that can appear in a run, artifacts that are in a run, characters and character skins and character variations. Those are less so for the skins, but characters and character variations would probably be the biggest variances of what your starting points. Yeah, but the characters part is not part of the experience system. That's true. That's based on how far you get in. These all change like very static parts of the inner run. Like when you get a new character, you can pick the new character, but they're not more or less powerful. They don't get more powerful over time. They are just like a different aspect in all the loadouts you could possibly have now. And so to get characters, it's not too hard. You need to defeat them as they are bosses after a certain point in the run. So when they get their more powerful patterns and things. So when they're a real challenge, you have to do that. And they feel really cool here. They're like a badge of honor. Oh, I got good. I mastered this character's more difficult attack pattern. Now I have them and it feels really empowering to get that. And that's a really, in the early game, when you first get the game, It feels really cool unlocking these characters. It's not too difficult. The bit that I think gets more complicated and kind of ties into both Sheeran and Hades' talk is unlocking characters' additional loadouts. And the additional loadouts of characters are almost like new characters in themselves, but without new sprites. Like, they play dramatically differently to the base characters. And the key aspect here is every character has a weapon that is independent from whatever spells you have available, whatever cards you have available, that you can use at any time, provided you have the mana to use it. And that's what, like, that can't be changed between characters and the character loadouts. But that is what's different between them. And that's the big part of why characters feel so different. Even the initial loadouts can do a lot. For instance, Saffron has two bonus loadouts because she's so special. One of them, she can slow down time with her weapon, Mm -hmm. I believe. And the other one, the main important thing is that she starts with a single card in her deck. And like that is her quirky loadout thing. And other characters, like their alternative loadout might be they start with cards that get them on the opposite side of the screen, which enables right from the start, you can guarantee guarantee that you can create certain builds. So what does all this translate into? Well, how do we get these additional builds is the real question. And they're done by completing runs. Now, technically and impractically, the runs in One Step From Eden don't end. Once you finish a run, it sort of keeps looping and you can loop sort of indefinitely. But the game has a point in which you've reached Eden, the goal of the game narratively, and you defeat the big bad and that counts as you finishing the game and you get rewards based on that completion. This is hard. And so you're going to spend a lot of time looking at these loadout screens, seeing this space, knowing there's something really interesting and cool here that you can't access that gives you genuinely different options that feels like interesting good possibilities and so in Shirin, i've played it for many many years and i finished it like twice and you know that makes completing runs feel special and it makes failure feel ordinary in one step from eden failure of a run feels like the failure to get a thing that i know is very cool and interesting like every time i don't finish a run with shiso i'm like oh but i really want his extra build which i know is this and that like limiting of options based on this really hard completion criteria 
I think makes it almost more hard to keep up with than Sheeran. Like, Sheeran is punishing, but you're not missing out on anything by not finishing the game. Wanzo from Eden is denying you a huge scope of interesting possibility. This denial makes it seem as if you are expected to finish it. And why didn't you? Are you just not good enough? You know, like that kind of feeling. And it suggests that finishing it is the normal thing that we should all be doing. And Hades is like working very hard to make that happen over the course of all its resources. But Wanzo from Eden doesn't really have that in its base default way of playing. You don't accrue pure power across your characters in the outer loop like you do in Hades. Even the cards you unlock, which I'm usually not a fan of that sort of system, but the cards you unlock genuinely have more complexity to them. And there are some of them I've seen that like, I definitely am glad that was not like in my first run. That would have been a nightmare card to deal with in my first run. And the characters you unlock also have additional complexity and their alternate builds have much higher complexity and request a much higher understanding of the game than the base builds of characters. Absolutely. It makes sense that these rewards are tiered in the way that they are. It's just that the requirements themselves change the feeling of what the end of a run feels like. Yeah, I wouldn't say One Step From Eden does anything particularly groundbreaking or innovative in terms of any of this. It's just the feeling that all of these parts together creates is, yes, you know, something a bit different from anything else. Yeah, it it feels uniquely disappointing in a way that I'm not used to in roguelikes Mm -hmm. when I finish a run. I will also say that One Step From Eden is an amazingly complex just experience. Every episode I always come into Flash on Pitfalls, I always come into the recording with a, yeah, this one made me think. Uh, One Step From Eden made me think, and I haven't fully kind of internalized what my thoughts on it ultimately are yet so if if this sounds interesting definitely take a look at it there's a lot at play here there's a lot more at play with the combat system as well i think this is a really fascinating joyous game and it frustrates me so much that it also just fills me with so much annoyance Almost every time I play. One thing of note is that this game in a recent patch added a mode called Angel Mode, which was directly inspired by Hades God Mode. And there's a blog post about that even on the Steam update for the game. And Angel Mode, basically every time you fail a run, it will give you a small increase in defense and it will decrease the speed of all enemies on screen, making it easier to read what's going on. And this can go as high as a 50 percent damage increase and a 50% slowdown of enemies. 50% defense increase, you said damage. Sorry, yes, I did. Yeah, a 50% defense increase, as well as slowing down all enemies. And this, I don't think it's a strong solution necessarily for this, but it does definitely make it more achievable. And probably for players who are frustrated like me about their failures, it helps them get past that and get to having the things that they want. Yeah, I, I do think that this is one of the cases where the developers just good at the game they made. Yeah, and this game had like a lot of playtesting and this is a kind of a issue with some like very strongly playtested games like Slay the Spire went the opposite way to a lot of these where it actually got easier over time. Like the development team were very conscious that their players were very skilled at the game and that that was not what the release version needed to be. This is a very tricky thing to balance. It is because who do you... There's this big question that I think we've kind of brought up with that Hades Sheeran discussion of who do you make a game for? Do you make it for me who doesn't like any of these progression systems? Do you make it for someone who 
those progression systems are a key part of why they play. And One Step from Eden sits in this very fascinating middle ground almost. Yep. Because it has these progression things, but none of them increase your actual power in a run. And the the progression, if you squint at it in a different way, isn't even progression. It's just variety. Yeah, that's the thing. You're really just unlocking variety. Yeah, which is important for novelty's sake. Shirin doesn't really have this. You you can't just decide, and this time Shirin will, you know, do something different. That's not a that's not a component of Shirin the Wanderer. No, like you might come across a new combination of items that allows you to play in ways you didn't before, which is, you know, that's a commonish rogue like thing, run based game thing. But it's not that exciting. I would definitely, as a fan of Shirin, say that there is not the most variety in the experience, even when it is quite different. Yeah. All right. I, I think that's a good cap on One Step from Eden. So uh, it's time to move on to the fourth game in the list. Cadence of Hyrule, Crypt of the Necrodancer, featuring The Legend of Zelda, is a 2019 run-based rhythm action adventure by Brace Yourself Games, the developers of the original Crypt of the Necrodancer, directed by Ryan Clark, Toshihisa Nakaido, produced by Makoto Isobe, and designed by Oliver Trujillo and Ryan Clark. So this game, compared to our other games, while broadly fitting in the popular terminology of roguelike or roguelite, has a very different approach to what is a run and what is the inner and outer loop. So for this game, the inner loop... Well, actually, first let me talk about what the game is. This game is a Legend of Zelda game in terms of overall structure. You are tasked with finding a number of magical items that will let you fight a final boss. And to get those items, you have to navigate dungeons that will have power-ups that enable you to do new actions. And and they're all very Legend of Zelda staple. Yes, So you get like a bow, a hookshot, a boomerang and things like that. And so you have a very traditional Zelda structure to how the game is played. But the moment to moment gameplay is this rhythm based roguelike where you take turns, much like in Shirin, but to the beat and you do attacks, you use items, you use weapons and things like that on the beat to defeat enemies. You can progress your character by finding new items in the overworld, like in classic Zelda. And you can also progress your character by buying temporary items from the game's respawn shop. When you die, you go to the special place to buy new items. Some of those are permanent, many are not. And that's like the very broad strokes of this game and how it plays. Each character has a lot of different nuances as to their abilities and how they play, but generally we're playing this rhythm turn-based adventure game so what's interesting here is that all the zelda things function as the outer loop we progress our character by finding items in the overworld the overworld is randomly generated each time but once you make your file that seed is locked so every time you die we're still in the same world it's not the world that changes every time you respawn but if i was to make a new file i would get a new world so in some sense like the Zelda meta progression side is also a complete run. This is a game that is more so than anything else we've dealt with built around finishing. It set the outer loop, the outer section of the game sets itself up as a normal, very straightforward Zelda RPG, which in turn, you know, would have their own meta game to explore and talk about, which 
what am I going to try to go for first? What am I, what tools will I have available first to me? What does that open up in terms of avenues for exploration, which will in turn, you know, lead to more power-ups and stuff like that. But sitting inside of that outer shell of a Zelda game is Crypt of the Necrodancer. So, and I think it's really fascinating just seeing this idea of what we would think of as a complete game experience zelda just having like a different inner loop thrown into it is so interesting so compelling and so surprising this game when it was announced was a huge shock to everyone and in many ways still is a huge shock that it exists nintendo are very protective over their ips especially the zelda one yes ish zelda has also been the one they've given out before like we have hyrule warriors we've had the capcom developed zelda game um the oracles in fact zelda was the one of the first series they gave out with the infamous cdi games zelda seems to be the thing that they're just like yeah you can have it i think that's still relatively protective over it though yeah compared to other companies yeah they are more protective of it but of nintendo's franchises it feels like maybe metroid is probably the closest one that they would throw to a lot of different people but that's beside the point so like a zelda game your character gains not just a lot of power over the course of many runs but a lot of new verbs and the verbs stay with you so in hades you get new verbs but those you pick the verb that will define your run or the verb set that defines your run correct if you pick the sword you're the sword for the whole run sure you might get a power up that makes your dash deflect things but you're still fundamentally the same verb set just with different consequences on the individual verbs but there is a massive difference between playing zelda with a boomerang versus playing with the hookshot and versus playing with both those items. So as you play, your verb set will increase, which changes each run as you play through the game quite a lot. And each run generally starts with a mission. Like, oh, I need to go here. So your runs don't function like regular run-based game runs in that each run much more primarily exists to get you to the next step of your adventure mm. rather than being like, this is the run that gets me the game, that gets me the win. It's like someone took the Legend of Zelda RPG experience, chopped it up, and put in between major like location points and plot points and just put in a small run yeah that's right and that's what it feels like and like Hades and things like there's very little opportunities to regain HP so it can be quite quick to die in things so, you know, the points between where new runs start are quite short. Yeah, Crypt of the Necrodancer, for anyone who hasn't played it before, is quite a grinder of a game until you get familiar with its mechanics. You lose health on a dime because you don't think about it. The beat encourages you to make decisions quickly. One of the things that's very core to a lot of run-based games is just the moment-to-moment decision-making. And when the beat is just urging you to make decision after decision after decision, oftentimes you make the wrong ones until you get familiar with the game's mechanics. I will say say that compared to Crypt of the Necrodancer, I don't like the rhythm side of this very much. There's an option in this game called Fixed Beat Mode that is not relevant to our current discussion, but I'm going to talk about it anyway, that enables you to drop all the rhythm stuff. And I think that this game actually shines more when you disable those sort of things. It does let you play quote unquote perfectly with the ability to make decisions as you need to. But I think that the game is so strong with all its systems and mechanics and still sufficiently difficult that that is a worthwhile thing to do if you're at all intimidated by the rhythm side. And I guess additionally, while some of your resources that you accrue between runs go towards making your character more powerful, the diamonds you collect often are more going to single run use items, like hover boots that let you jump over platforms or 
items that give you more bombs or safe bombs and things like that. And so there's a bit of in this game that you're sort of cashing out for like, this is the run that I'm going to accomplish this big task. Like if you're about to finish a dungeon that will get you an important item, you might be like, okay, now I'm going to buy this thing. That's really valuable. A bit reminiscent of Shirin and the way you can just store up resources for the run that you really want to make a serious attempt at. And, you know, with the same kind of consequences of if you do fail that one where you invested your resources, those invested resources are gone. Arcades of Hyrule is a lot more generous with giving you the resources to spend, of course. You get to make those serious runs more often. Yeah, Shirin, like, it can be hours between serious runs. In Cadence of Hyrule, it can be every two or three runs, you could maybe invest more deeply in your fourth or fifth run. And and you get wealthier the further into the game you get as well. So Very much so. And I think that's about it we have for this one, right? That's it for me. And with that, let's move on to our last game. Monster Hunter World is a 2018 uh, boss hunt action RPG developed and published by Capcom. Directed by Yuya Tokura, produced by Hironobu Takeshita, Shingo Izumi, and Kazunori Inoue, and designed by Teruki Endo and Yugo Togawa. Those of you paying attention will quickly realize that Monster Hunter World is quite unlike the previous four games that we've talked about in this episode so far, and is one of the big reasons why we were kind of avoiding the words uh, roguelike and roguelite, K and T. Despite my constant usage of those words <laughs> in the individual sections by accident, language is sticky. Language is a sticky thing, but th- th- bear with us as we get through this, because this 100% fits into what we wanted to talk about here, And I hope it kind of caps off this idea that there are going to be loops in games. There are going to be sections that kind of are self-contained. And it's kind of interesting to talk about these in specific detail. But before we get into that, let's very quickly cover what is Monster Hunter World. The core gameplay of Monster Hunter World is you are a hunter whose primary purpose isn't necessarily to kill monsters. Like Killing monsters will be the end result of what you do. But in lore, in universe... A lot of it is very ecological in nature. It is about keeping a logical ecological balance because, oh, a predator has come into this area and is going to destabilize the the ecosystem. Let's actually address that, possibly chase them off a bit and like herd them back to their own lands, figure out why they came over in the first place and fix that destabilization. And it's a very cool spin on just let's hunt big things. But it is actually just let's hunt cool dragons. Effectively, that's what it kind of boils down to. And cool dragons. Rabbits and, and yes. all sorts of cool animals, in fact, not just dragons. Cool giant frogs, which I am super excited for. But yeah, that's the base game. Am I missing anything from the base game? I feel like that's it, right? Um, that's the base run. Yeah. Um, another key component of Monster Hunter as a general thing is the variety of extremely distinct weapons. You thought Hades had different weapons. Oh boy. Like each of Monster Hunter's weapons could support an entire Demon Souls, Devil May Cry, you know, intense action game. Yeah, weapon set on its own. Absolutely. It is quite creative. I won't say like it's the most innovative way that you d- deal with weapons on us, but it is very creative and it is very much rule of cool first. Would it be cool to do this with your giant sword? Yeah, let's try and put that into the game. You know, when the, the original Monster Hunter came out in like the early 2000s, I actually do think these are really creative. That's, that's a very fair point. At that time of release, 
use weapons that had weight, weapons that had mass, were really uncommon. Like this idea of like being very meticulous with positioning and things. And then you got weapons like the hunting horn. Like I actually oh, think hunting that horn. based on when Ill, all these things were originally implemented, this is a really creative set of weapons in both what they are and how they specifically work. Absolutely. I Absolutely. haven't seen many gun lances. How about you? Uh, you know what? Not even in the game have I seen many gun lances. Not exactly a popular weapon. I also want to just like point out, to be fair, huge Capcom fanboy over here. So I am wholly inclined to agree with you. Capcom is amazing. And uh, they genuinely have done very, very good work with this series in general, not just this entry. But yeah, so this series is built around like getting weapons and like building them up and building armor from the corpses of the monsters you slayed and things like that. And that forms a really key part of the progression that people find interesting. And unlike RPGs, traditionally, where your character themselves gains power, all the progression aspects in Monster Hunter are your items getting better and getting better items. The base character you have never gains a single stat point ever, basically, right? Yep, that's right. You, it's not like you have strength con or whatever, and you're raising them from experience. Uh, it's just a lot of it ends up being resistances, I would say, and then just raw damage output on top of that. I will also say this, the player gains a lot of knowledge and experience. Yes. Like, we say action RPG, and, like, the action is the primary thing here. It just happens to have a bunch of progression things, too. Because I don't care how far you are in the progression tree of the game, you're not likely to be able to go toe-to-toe, hit-for-hit with a monster in this game. Yeah. yeah. There's no yeah. tanking of hits unless you're, like, doing, like, a very absurd difference. And even then, tackling a very early boss with endgame armor probably isn't just a freebie either. It's close. But- it's very close. <laughs> it is very, very close. But let's get to the core of what we're here to talk about. So, the boss hunt system. We've actually talked about this in a previous episode of Platforms and Pitfalls, also about loops. And that's kind of why I really pushed for Monster Hunter World to be in this list, because it's a really good cap off to a lot of things that we're going to talk about here, because loops are an integral part to the way we digest games. We do things in a loop with games. It's all about, let's do this action, let's do this action slightly differently, let's do this action different again. And in that one, we talked a lot about how the core gameplay loop is contained in 50 minutes because that's the maximum amount of time that a hunt can take in monster hunter you hit that time limit you just fail like the game just goes oh you failed whoops so for the purpose of this discussion that's our inner loop and it 100 is just this inner loop because that's all the prep that you do outside of it is just to get into this hunt for up to 50 minutes to kill a monster and be done kill multiple monsters and be done even so what is the outer loop in monster hunter then well it's all of the prep all of the micromanagement all of the resource management outside of the core hunt loop and this entails things like for example your weapons and armor your outer loop is where you decide i want to go for this now and so you pick a monster based on that it's where you have various resources being collected and kind of filtered through crafting that involves systems like the garden, which allows you to grow uh, fruits and herbs and cultivate uh, insects. 
researchers that allow you to get side quests, um, investigators and investigations that allow you more able to easily track monsters and to learn their patterns, like to have some of that being displayed to you other than just being internalized. Palico gathering where your friend cats can go out and gather simpler resources for you so that you don't have to farm every monster for every like simple component but you know the game does want to extract away the easier parts of it when you get to the more complicated parts because the easier parts are just going to be tedious at that point so you have palico gathering missions and in iceborne monster hunter world iceborne they added something called the steamworks which is this kind of steampunk machination that is effectively just a slot machine that spits out sometimes only marginally useful things like high potions but sometimes very useful things like max potions or even ancient potions and this steamworks accrues uh natural fuel as you just go on hunts but you can also dump in fuel um that you mined out of the world yourself and all the fuel does is it just allows you more turns with the slots and so all these systems combined so that monsanto doesn't feel initially like a run-based game like when you first saw this on a list on the on the link or in the notes text or even just heard us say it you're probably like monster hunter doesn't sound right in this list but it does fit this like all these things are building up and they are you know not that different ultimately to the mirror of darkness and hades precisely like they are different but like they're not that different no not really and a lot of this also comes to make the the monsters in the hunts feel more scary they're things that you have to prepare for like the fact that you have to do the satellite progression get ready for a hunt actually i think makes the bosses early on at least feel more like actually hunting a thing i think what am i going to bring into this you know you is this weapon better than this weapon for this boss and yes i'll Ultimately, your skill matters more than your loadout, but your loadout isn't inconsequential. Let's talk a bit as well about perma loss. So there isn't permadeath in this game. You don't lose your armor if you die. You don't lose your weapons if you die. However, you do, or, or rather, you are able to invest in a run to try to make it more successful. For example, buying food from the canteen. It's not a seriously consequential amount of resources that you're putting into a run for it to fail. But if you do fail, or even if you do succeed, that, that resource is used up completely. And early on in the game, hunts can be a bit expensive if you're not particularly confident. Especially if you fail, stacking failures on top of each other gets expensive. If you succeed, you tend to get rewarded quite handsomely. But when you fail, you get almost nothing out of the rewards. And this is something that definitely, in older Monster Hunters, so my big experience of Monster Hunter is with the, the enhanced version of the second game back in the early, in like 2010, I think. And that game is like, if you, you know, spend your food, buy your potions, and then fail a run, you might not even have enough money to take on the mission again. Yep. You might have to farm money from a different mission to be able to actually do the boss you wanted to do. Yep. And, you know, a lot of these sharper edges have been smoothed out to make a more accessible game now. But this is still a a highly meticulous planning-based game. So many people get turned off from the fact that you spend so much time outside of a hunt preparing for it rather than just going in and hunting something. And that's something to just keep in mind is that that is 100% part of the game. You are still playing the game in the outer loop when you are just in the hub world trying to figure out oh, which weapon do I want next? How prepared am I going to be? What am I going to take into this one? Do I am I going to need an antidote? Is this monster going to be poison based? Is this monster going to have fire? You know that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. very much. 
that's that's probably it for Monster Hunter World, uh, which means that we are into the summaries where we get to go over everything that we've talked about so far. Alrighty, so this month we talked about inner and outer loops in video games, and we gave you a, a rough definition for the inner loop being kind of this core run that you can do that is conceptually quite easy to see, especially constrained in terms of time. Uh, but importantly, what kind of goes on outside of that uh, meta progression slash outer loop, and all the kinds of activities that happen there and how they impact the feel of the game how the how the way they're even presented impacts the feel of the game uh we started this discussion with the extremely currently popular hades uh super competent game that has quite a lot of meta progression and outer loops and lots of resources to juggle as well as delivering very interesting story at least to me interesting story outside of your core run which all up adds to this experience that is quite rounded in terms of you don't feel too bad once a run is over when you die or it ends. And then moving on to Shirin, where when you die, it does feel a little bit bad. Shirin takes a very opposite approach to Hades with very minimal progression between runs, but with small aspects that help keep the world feeling a little alive. But the big sort of progression element in Shirin is this ability to cash in on a big run and where that failure really feels much stronger. And overall, that makes the experience a bit less like one more try-ish, but does make each run feel independently more impactful. And there's this possibility in every run that it could be the run because there are no progression elements that are like, oh, next time you're more powerful. You're always the more powerful version of yourself. And third, we had One Step from Eden. Super interesting to look at in respect to Hades and Shiren because it doesn't have the crazy meta progression power-up of Hades, but it's not quite as just vanilla as Shiren either. One Step from Eden is highly chaotic in terms of the amounts of things that are happening in the run, coupled with the fact that there's quite a bit to unlock, and if you don't quite get there, you just don't get there. There is no, oh, you're close enough, you have progression towards this. No, if you don't get there, you just didn't unlock it. And that creates some kind of potentially bad feelings when you end a run, but hey. And then we looked at Cadence of Hyrule, which took two different um, existing games and basically made one of them the foundation for the outer loop. The Zelda structure is the outer loop of the game and a Crypt of the Necrodancer base game is the inner loop. So it's made up of many individual runs of that inner loop to create the feeling of a complete Zelda game. And lastly, ooh, what a game. Monster Hunter World, most decisively not a roguelike slash roguelite. However, I hope now you can agree with me very clearly has this meta progression outside of just hunt the monster. That is definitely the core of the game. That's the spirit of it. You are playing Monster Hunter to go in and, you know, hit a monster very hard in the head. However, outside of that, there's this this wealth of resource management game and hey look i understand if resource management isn't your game maybe that's what turns you off of monster hunter but it's there and it's 100 a game system that you have to interact with to be able to play the inner core part of it. and that was a great list like really this set of five games is I, I love last month's five games i think this month is also just a great collection and an odd collection that's so fun to bring together and really look through them i agree yeah. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you want to talk with us about anything we discussed, correct? 
like to suggest games that we maybe missed for the topic, you can tweet at the show, at Platinum Pit. We always love talking about these things. And you can find our personal Twitter accounts in the show notes. If you aren't one for Twitter, we have a Facebook page and an email there as well. And if you enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Or if you're feeling especially fancy, maybe review it. If you particularly like things that I said, or are interested in more of my thoughts in a more weekly format... I am also currently co-hosting a, a podcast of news roundup from the industry, everything around games, as well as talking about some of our experiences with games at the moment under uh, the podcast named Pixels for Breakfast Pod with my co-host Steve Heller. We definitely take a look at games and news for games from a developer slash in the industry perspective, if that is interesting to you come and check us out it's certainly interesting to me i really look forward to it every week and so with that let's talk about next time so we haven't fully established what next time will be entirely but ideally it should be a collaboration with the drawing conclusions animation podcast where we're going to be looking at platformer secrets our current list is a bit tentative we think we're going to be looking at mario sunshine donkey kong country 2 the messenger breath of the wild and super metroid so if you have any thoughts on these games and how they manage their platforming secrets we'd love to hear your thoughts and include them on the show you'd have until the end of february to submit your thoughts and with that thank you so much for listening